You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My guest today is Jean Twangy, who is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University and the author of more than 180 scientific publications and books. Her books include iGen, Generation Me, and her latest, which is called Generations, The Real Difference Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Gene Twangy, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, so I have to confess up front that I have ulterior motives in asking you to be on the podcast, <laughs> so we're going to get that across, but uh, we interview many academics to talk about their research, how it relates to the human condition broadly, so that's that's on brand, but specifically, the Second City is being hired by many Fortune 500 companies to help them with a communication problem. Again, this isn't new. We've been using improvisational techniques to help with this issue for three decades now, but in this case... These companies are asking us to help with generational differences that are getting in the way of the success of the day-to-day work of their employees. I am also married to a college professor, and both of us have been working with new generations of young people uh, at the Second City for our entire careers. But I don't recall ever getting this ask from companies in the past. Um, Why would we be getting this ask now, in your professional opinion? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it all comes back to technology. It's a big focus in the book. And especially with smartphones and social media, it's just completely changed the landscape. So we have um, especially Gen Z, so those born roughly 1995 to 2012. They're coming into the workplace now. And really big break between them and the millennials. 
millennials just before them. Millennials very optimistic. Gen Z is very pessimistic. Mm. Millennials certainly played around with the internet and social media quite a bit when they were growing up. But for Gen Z, it's all they've ever known. They don't know a time. They have never known a time before the smartphone and ubiquitous social media. So, um, but and that's maybe a bit different than the way other people have talked about the generations in the past, which seems to often be around events. Like, this is the World War II group. This is the group that was scared of, you know, nuclear war, right? That sort of thing. And you're saying, no, it's technology, plus it's another thing, too, right? Right. So, yeah, that's the traditional theory of generations, that generational differences all come from how old you were when you experienced a certain event. And yet that has an impact on people, but not as much as technology. That, you know, developments in technology, not just the internet, but things like better medical care and air conditioning and washing machines have just completely changed our lives. I mean, that's what makes it so different to live now compared to 100 years ago or 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. That has a big impact. Then technology has these downstream effects too, that it makes it possible to focus more on self and less on others. So that's individualism. And then because of better medical care and people living longer, the entire developmental trajectory from infancy to old age is slowed down. So kids are less independent. Teens are less likely to get their driver's license or have a job when they're still in high school. Young adults take longer to get married and have kids and settle into a career. And then middle-aged and older people feel younger than their parents and grandparents did at the same age. So that, you know, 60 is a new 50 is kind of true. So when you talk about individualism, uh, and I was going to say, and I don't know actually if this is true as I'm saying it, but let me go ahead, uh, that, that many people think that that's just a net positive. Like, why would that be bad? Um, but, but there's a tension, uh, I think, that truly exists and, and certainly does in the book between individualism and collectivism. Because in, in the sense of individualism, so much of that is good in terms of progress, especially for marginalized communities. But at the same, but at the same time, we don't do this thing alone. <laughs> and so... Right. And I I tend to believe when I'm looking at the world now and getting like sort of tearing my hair out, it is that idea of like, can we not find some common ground? Yeah, I I think that's it. I mean, every cultural system has has its trade-offs. And I think most of us living today would, would, if if given the choice, would still take individualism. It is a net positive, but there's certainly downsides to it in terms of disconnection, in terms of, you know, self-centeredness, in terms of, you know, let's... Can, can we even agree on facts? You know, that's especially mm-hmm. in the last five to 10 years just seems much, much more polarized in a, a way that's been tough. Uh, one of my favorite things in the book, and this is early, because uh, you always hear this thing about, especially every generation, I'm sure I'm Gen X, uh, is talking about the next generation as being soft. And you basically go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and in the way of like, that should not be a surprise. So tell us a little bit of what, what that means. Because I don't think you're saying it like, you know, yeah. negatively necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really not. I mean, and it, it, you know, again, it just comes down to all of these conveniences that we enjoy now and how much easier that has made life. Um, and it, it's really not about finger waving, finger waving or like people, you know, judging the other generations. It's simply that, you know, in terms of, say, just sheer physical effort, life is easier now. Now, do we have other challenges? Oh, yes. Lots of them, particularly around around mental health um, and polarization and all of these other things. But yeah, the idea that my life is easier than my 
grandmothers who uh, had eight children and lived on a dairy farm in Minnesota. It's yeah. kind of hard to dispute. Uh, I remember we were the first, because my dad was in the entertainment industry, uh, a radio and TV guy here in Chicago. We had the first uh, VCR uh, on the block, and that had a remote, and I'm doing finger quotes because the yeah. remote was... was yeah. It was no, the thing was huge, and then then it was a cord, but all it did was send things. It was fast forward and 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 reverse, but you still had to go up to do anything else on the machine. And now I can't even think about not lying in my bed having every movie available to me. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and you think about things like that. I mean, it's it, it really it really is remarkable having the access to so much information, so much entertainment, and how. Fantastic that is. But then on the other hand, you know, if you're binge watching Netflix for six hours, what are you not doing that maybe you should be, you know, spending time with other people face to face, maybe, or, you know, other things. And that's, that's the trade off. All right, so I want to jump in in a second to go through all the different generations. It's, and and, and the, it's a big book, uh, and, and I found it really, really insightful. But before we do that, uh, a, a phrase we, we find very common with our guests, and I certainly think it's true for myself, is the, the term me-search. What brought you into, into this world? What's going on with you to have you sort of dig so deeply in this? All right, so I got a Chicago connection here, too. Love so. It. It started uh, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago and doing my honors thesis. Um, and I gave people questionnaires on um, stereotypically masculine and feminine traits. So things like, you know, assertiveness and independence versus, you know, caring and, and empathy. Very, very stereotypical, but something I was really interested in. And this is in the early 90s. And my fellow uh, UFC students scored very differently from what the 1970s test manual Hmm. said they should score. And at first I'm like, well, come on. It's the University of Chicago. We're all weird. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That has to be what it is. (laughs) Yep. Where fun goes to die. Right. Exactly. Hell does freeze over. (laughs) So then I go to University of Michigan for graduate school the next year. Their undergraduates are uh, spectacularly normal, at least at least compared to UFC undergraduates. Okay. So, and then I was using a subject pool. It was a little bit more representative. Same result. Same result. Mm-hmm. So, so that got me thinking. I ended up gathering um, about 60 different studies that had used that same questionnaire over the whole time span between the early 70s, early 90s. And sure enough, there was a big generational shift, particularly for women in mm-hmm. describing themselves as assertive and leaders and so on. And then it was also around the same time, there's a lot of attention paid to my own generation, Gen X, and what we were like, uh, and realizing this is probably a generational difference. But so many of those books and articles out there aren't basing this on any kind of survey or questionnaire. You know, one of them said, oh, Gen Xers have low self-esteem. Like, do you have any data to back that up? And they didn't. Mm-hmm. So, this is what you want as a graduate student is something that you're very interested in that, that that's cool but that has not been researched that much. And I was surprised to find that generations fell into that category. All right. So we're both Gen X. I, and, and there's certainly, I, I, I know, and it isn't just from reading this book. It's certainly how I grew up because I'm the youngest of six boys, 
right? Mm-hmm. So I am your poor, uh, mo- your poor mother. My, well, she wanted twelve, and she was <laughs> okay. So maybe not. So Irish Catholic, we had a bust of Kennedy. You know, you get you get the picture. Yeah. Uh, but but this is like Boomer Central, right? You know, in, in front of me, and we're a small generation, right? And, and there's also that sense of like, well, where are we? And 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 it still sort of feels that way of of. And, and I have no complaints. I have an incredible career uh, here. But it was interesting reading the book and realizing that, no, indeed, this is a we're a little bit of an outsider in terms of these these generations. And so, the, you know, that that led me, in, in essence, I think, to be excited about researching this, not just that clients were, were interested. I'm interested. Yeah. And as a Gen Xer, I was a little surprised in writing the book. That was actually in some ways the hardest chapter to write, even though it was my own generation and my Mm -hmm. own experience, just because, you know, Gen X got its name like early 90s. X is an unknown quantity. It actually still sort of fits us, even in middle age, like we just aren't quite as defined. And I think that those generational cutoffs, too, between boomers and Gen X and Gen X and millennial are, are also just not as clear. We're the middle child of generations. So we always get ignored. So we're mediating, you know, between the boomers uh, before us and the millennials after us. But, you know, that said, I think we do have some distinguishing characteristics. We really were the last to have an analog childhood, but then the first to have an Internet adulthood. Yeah. How about that? This I you have and it's later in my notes, but I'm going to talk about it now because it's an Illinois law that you had in there in Uh terms of. This is stunning to me. So was it at the age 14? Was that the one? Okay. So if I'm getting this right, there is a law in Illinois that if a child who is 14 or under is outside without their parent, they're- I think it might be home alone, actually. Or maybe it's- Home alone or out, yeah, or both. That they, they, that that's illegal? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is the, safe, the safety culture that has done a lot of good, but has what some people call mission creep that, I mean, think about Gen X, like, you know, walking to school by yourself when you were seven was common. It was very common for kids to stay at home alone at, at that age. Um, yeah. It was common for 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds to babysit younger children uh, and to, for people to roam, you know, around on their bikes. I mean, that's just kind of the way it was. And then as time goes on, partially because of the slow life strategy and, you know, uh, other things, just just a lot more protection for kids and the idea that they are not as independent and that they um, just can't be left alone. Yeah. When I read that, I was talking to my boss and I'm like, hey, did you play on the tracks? He's like, of course I played on the tracks. And I'm like, yeah, I did too. I mean, like, Idi- we're idiots. Right. Like I right. get that. <laughs> Let's acknowledge that. Right. We will acknowledge. Back. Don't play on the tracks, kids. Right. But but also it was like come back when um, the streetlights turn on. That's this was right. a great thing. And even for my kids, I mean, my daughter babysat when she was twelve. And there's a park at the end of my block where all we would send all the kids, and like you know maybe a parent would head down there to get them back for dinner, but that was about it. So that just that immediately, and I of course understand and have again i've worked with young people so i understand helicopter parenting and 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 those other things but i mean to have that be a law sort of says Mm -hmm. this is more than just a cultural trope we might be talking about yeah i mean it it's very much baked in now um and there's been a lot of interesting cases the last couple of years of parents who want to have their kids develop that kind of independence that want to give them at least somewhat of the experience of what Gen Xers experienced growing up to develop those skills. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they, they get in trouble. I mean, there was a case, I forget how long ago, maybe seven or eight years ago, 
know, of um, a um, parents who let their six-year-old and 10-year-old walk home from a park that was about a mile away. Mm-hmm. They, they, they opened a child protective services investigation into it. God. Oh my God. All right. Let's go back. Let's talk about the silence. So yeah. this, this is uh, the years and this is all roughly right. So born yes. 1925 to 1945. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say in the book, quote, the name is a misnomer. This generation was far from silent. Okay, so what's going on there? Yeah. So the silence were the leaders of the civil rights movement and the feminist movement, not the boomers. So that's where it's a big misnomer. Mm. You know, the label, I think, came about because they married young, had their kids young, you know, started their careers fairly young. And so at least at first, it looked like they weren't going to be very politically active. So that label, they got slapped with that label in the early 1950s. Well, we know it started to happen, you know, about 10 years after that, if not mm-hmm. before that, then they, and they were really at the, at the forefront of that. So that's why I think that label is such a misnomer. Yeah. Cause I don't think anyone would say that MLK or RBG or Bob right. Dylan or Joni Mitchell, Fauci, Biden, I mean, this yes. is not silent people. Right. Um, uh, the other thing you say in the book, quote, is at the time of the technology of the 1950s, it felt breathtaking. And I think that's actually a thing to also, be, it would be, it's hard, right? Because it's like a fish swimming in water. We're looking at technology and going, oh my God, especially with chat GBT, you know, over the last couple of weeks in yeah. AI. But right. in the 50s, similar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, just having a washing machine was something that, or a clothes dryer, you know, was fairly new at that time um all all of that and then you put on top of that um people being you know men being shot into space and then eventually Mm. to the moon then it it was just that was the space age it was this absolute fascination with everything that was a new technology okay so with the exception of uh like rupert murdoch and joe biden most silence are not in the um Right. They're, they're not in companies anymore. They're retired. Right. Uh, but the boomers are, are, are the ones that take up a lot of space because they take up a lot of space. Um, you, you talk about them dominating American culture at every stage of their life cycle. OK, th- now I maybe kind of knew that, but it is it's more than just knowing it. It is just a fact and in, in, in a very powerful way. Can you talk a bit about how that how that shows itself in, our, in these decades? Yeah. So, so people sometimes demographers talk about like the pig and the python, and you can really see just that boomers get their name from all of the the huge, huge increase in the birth rate um, around the time they were born, nineteen forty six to, to nineteen sixty four, and then you know fewer people born before that, the Gen Xers after that, a smaller generation. So you can see them kind of moving up the age scale, and just you know the culture was child-centered when they were kids, and then it was focused on rebellion when they were young, and then in the 80s when they started to age into their 30s, then it was much more focused on stability and building families. You know, just the culture followed them at every step. And I think we're just now in that transition time where they're no longer at the center, but they still are at the center of something. So it's one thing in the Gen X chapter is that baby boomers had held on to political power much longer than mm-hmm. previous generations. Even if you're correcting for popul- population size, Gen X has just not had as many uh, governors or senators as boomers did at the same age. Uh, any presidents? None. Zero. So, yeah, well, the, because the, the Obama president was a, skipped. Right, yeah. He was the closest. Okay, right. but he was still a boomer? 
He was still a boomer, at least by most people's definition. Although I don't know, I think a lot of people consider him an honorary Gen Xer. Yeah, I don't can, know what he thinks. Yeah, no, I think he might think that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I've met him a couple times being in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Um, so this is interesting, also, because when you talk about individualism. And I know sort of I love Tom Wolfe's books growing up and it feels like he's such a great chronicler of that in terms of that what that me generation meant really coming out of 60s, 70s into Mm -hmm. into 80s. Right stuff is about that right all the way through. So so and and I think in in, I think Wolfe saw through maybe like there. Yeah, there's some nobility, but there's a dark side. And I think that was maybe trying to warn on this stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think, I think the other thing that's sometimes missed in that conversation around individualism is it, it's assumed that that was boomers and then it stopped. No, no, <laughs> not at all. It kept going. It just had different flavors in each generation. And, you know, Gen Xers, we like to think of ourselves as not influenced by boomers. But if you look at a lot of the trends around um, individualism, particularly around like self-confidence, um, even some things around materialism, that really, really uh, started to grow with Gen X. And then millennials took it to yet another level in terms of you know, thinking very highly of yourself, having very high expectations. That really peaked with millennials. So I thought about this uh, and, and I want to, we're, we're going to jump into Gen X a little bit. And, and I remember this conversation I have with my boss here at Second City, uh, my former boss, uh, who was definitely a boomer. I'm Gen X. And he was always concerned about Second City selling out. And my whole thing, I was like, I don't think that's a thing anymore. It, like, and I remember like the Who had that album, The Who Sells Out, and it was them with deodorant and that sort of thing. I'm like, I get that. But like, Jay-Z is one of the most powerful performers today who is a businessman. And, try, mm-hmm. and Beyonce yeah. is a businesswoman and, and all that. So mm-hmm. is, is that, is that some, I think that is something that we... I don't, when did Gen X sort of wake up to like, like, I think you say in the book, there's nothing left to sell out anymore. Right. right. And that, you know, this, this is, this point has been, has been debated a little bit. I've heard some people argue, you know, early nineties, you know, the kind of anti-corporate thing, like, like Nirvana used to talk about that. And then, you know, it was sort of a, you know, time of like this darkness and sort of rebellion, but I think that was the exception rather than the rule. Cause you, you know, if you, if you, if you look at, these big surveys that I work with of, of young people, we've, you know, some, a lot of really good data where we can compare Gen X to the, to the boomers before them. And that's really what you see. You, you, you see much more of an acceptance of, yeah, advertising, duh, that's going to happen, you know, mm-hmm. or um, among college students that majoring in business became much more popular in the eighties and early nineties when it was the Gen Xers who were the college students. So you know, materialism, mm-hmm. you know, among high school students, late eighties, early nineties, you know, among like saying, you know, it'd be great to have a vacation house. It would be great to have a boat, that type of thing. That, that peak, you know, rich lifestyles of the rich and famous. Remember that show? Yes. We all watched that on Saturday afternoons. Yeah. Was that Robin Leach? Yes, it was. It was. Mm-hmm. Oh God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you also talk about, the TV that we grew up with, which, as you put, because I, I'm pretty sure I went for Halloween as a character from HR Puff and stuff. Which, if, if anyone, it's available. I have the DVD at home, so just like I showed it my kids this, and they're like, "What were yeah. they on?" I, like, I know. <laughs> oh, they were definitely on something. They were on no, something. the boomers who wrote those shows. They were smoking something in the employee bathroom. 
before they sat down to write at their typewriters. Maybe it, you know, maybe it wasn't even just smoking. I don't know. Cause it was pretty nuts. Um, yeah. So the, the, my favorite of that era was Sigmund, the sea monster. Yes. Good one. And as I was writing this book, I, you know, I went, of course the production values by today's standards, you know, that's the first thing you notice, but did you know that Sigmund, the sea monster was Billy Barty in a costume? Like, no. I'm not joking. I found that's that out writing this book. Wild. Yeah. Was that was that also Sid and Marty Croft or a different? Uh, I, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. that that was yeah. that studio with those guys. Yeah, yeah, probably. And the Hudson Brothers. Yeah, I mean, like you think, yeah, what an amazing. You also have a funny thing in in the book, and I talked to my friend Jen, who's across the hallway from me, also Gen X, uh, about uh, the fact that we all watched um, Battle of the Network Stars because there was nothing yes. on it. Oh my god. And they, you know, ESPN two or one of those. Um, I don't know if they do this anymore, but they used to show them. Oh, really? And they, it, it is really funny to look back at that. And they're all like in the the Pepperdine uh, University pool, you know, and they're all in the kayaks. And what was yeah. great is that Howard Cassell, like he played it completely straight. Yep. You know, he it was like the Olympics to him, and he, yep. he wasn't joking about anything. And you know, everybody else was, but like he he was playing it completely straight. So like there was one time where. Uh, Gabe Kaplan from Welcome Back Cotter was doing the the kayak race, and Howard Cassell goes, "The only thing left for Gabe Kaplan is survival." <laughs> I mean, you can't beat that. No, you can't beat that, or a flourishing poker career. So you know that, right. which is what what he went on to. Uh, you have a, a kind of a long paragraph, but I want to read it anyway because I think it's really smart and good. Which is, you say, "quote Gen X is a generation of firsts." and lasts. Gen X was the first generation to experience television as a constant since birth. They were also the first generation to enter young adulthood in the age of the internet and the last to experience an analog childhood with all the cassette tapes playing outside, paper books, and boredom that implies. Gen X was the first generation born in the 20th century not to be drafted into the military thanks to the thoroughly individualistic idea of an all-volunteer force, yet Gen X grew up at the peak of the Cold War with the near-constant fear of nuclear war, and unlike boomers, they had no illusions about hiding under their desks would do any good at all. I try to remind, like, this was my thing, right? Like, I Reagan know. was going to get us killed. Right. Everybody forgets this, because it yeah. didn't happen, thank it goodness. Didn't. Yes. But everybody forget, and, and I think I think it's an important thing to, important conversation to have, because now there's a lot of doom and gloom about climate change and other problems that we have, and rightly so, we do need to, to solve these, but you know, we have to realize that the apocalypse seemed like it was going to happen tomorrow for a good amount of history. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Uh, what was going on in the 80s and 90s in terms of violence as compared to now? What does the data tell us? Yeah. So violent crime peaked around that time, late 80s, early 90s, and and then recovered. Now, the last couple of years hasn't been great. You know, there's certainly no. been some increases, but we are nowhere near where the violent crime rate was in, in the early 90s. It was bad, right? It was really bad. Um, I mean, people were were very, very scared, and rightly so. Um, and it, it was, it, 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 I think people forget this piece too, like the, the early 90s was this, you know, kind of odd time. It was when Gen X was kind of first discovered by the media. And it was the idea that we all were black and were depressed. Uh, it was Nirvana. It was um, this, and maybe because of the crime wave, it was kind of this time when there was this, I don't know, just idea that like things weren't so great and the economy yeah. wasn't that good. And then, you, we, you know, we know what happened next. Then things started to turn around mm-hmm. and the crime rate started to go down and the economy started to get better. And Gen X's reputation went pretty quickly from slackers 
to internet millionaires. Mm, yeah. A lot of those are all true, of course, but it captures that trajectory uh, of the 90s. Uh, it just everything looks so bad, and then it turned around. Uh, as we slip into talk about the millennials, I think there can be a better transition than a tweet that you write about by Zoe Wedall. Quote, it is confusing. It's a confusing thing to be born between generations where the one above thinks nothing is trauma and the one below thinks everything is trauma. <laughs> That's yeah. Very broad, of course, overly broad, yes. but funny and yes. kind of true. Yes. I mean, like rub some dirt on it. And, right. and, and then the other thing that t- I got taught uh, through recent years in, in my field, and I brought this up a couple times on the podcast. So in my field, there's that phrase, I'm sure you've heard it because everyone has, which is the show must go on. Mm-hmm. And, and to realize after a certain point, it's like, well, maybe not, you know, mm-hmm. when it really couldn't. And then recognizing over the years how that might have been used by certain greedy producers to have people work when they were sick or even myself to work when I was sick and, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, there's some wisdom in, 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 the, in these changes of, of perspective. And then there's also that aspect of things of like, and we know this from our work at Second City and Improv, which is uh, a, a, a flexing the muscles of learning how to be live inside discomfort. Because mm-hmm. as we know, getting older kicks the hell out of you. It's just <laughs> it's going to. There's just no you don't really have a choice in the matter. So that's a tough that's a tough tension, right? Both those things. Yeah, it is, and you know, and it, it's things are trade offs so often, and I, I think that's true here. So you know, it is really good that younger generations have brought awareness to say issues around mental health. It is really good that there is more attention that is paid to inequality. But I think you can really see a generational break between Gen X and millennials in that Gen X grew up valuing the idea of being tough and resilient and millennials and Gen Z don't really value that much. Hmm. And that, I think, has been one thing at the root of some of the controversies the last couple of years, where uh, sometimes around free speech, sometimes around other issues. And I, I kind of looking at that noticed a pattern. It was very often a Gen Xer who was on that side of, you know, nope, let's let's talk about everything. Let's live with our discomfort. And then it was millennials and Gen Z who were like, nope, let's just shut it down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think a really good example of how how this affected our culture is the army choosing in 2000 this this new slogan, which in retrospect is terrible, uh, an army of one. Yes. It couldn't be further from what needs to happen inside right. the army. And right. I know that was a disaster in terms of that campaign, but they were mm-hmm. trying to reach this millennial audience, right? Right, right. exactly. Where... You know, they grew up in Gen Xers will recognize a lot of these phrases, too, of just be yourself and you are special. And all of these very, very individualistic messages. And I think, you know, a lot of the problem, though, with some of these individualistic messages is, you know, they're not just individualistic, they're delusional. Mm -hmm. So just be yourself is a great example. Well, what if you're a jerk? (laughs) What if you're a serial killer? Maybe you should be somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and 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 you know, we talk a lot in our work about authenticity, and I was pretty excited when I discovered uh, Irvin Goffman's work, and and he sort of came to the front 
right around the time Second City was starting in 1959 when his seminal work came out. But he talks about the self of, of having an onstage self, but also an offstage self and a backstage self. And that they're not in competition with each other. We are just, multi, you know, Whitman said that, you know, I contain multitudes. I mean, like, that idea is not schizophrenia. It's a reality that... Um, we have to present differently in different contexts and situations. And I just think this is, this feels like a thing that's always gone on in the human condition is like, we just want one thing to be true. And it's like, that's just not going to happen. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, millennials, most educated generation in American history, you say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, why is that? Why is that? Of, um, mostly going to college that many more millennials have got, have gone to college. And graduated. And, and women, I would guess, more so than... That's right. Yeah. I mean, now more women get four-year college degrees than men. And that started to shift with Gen X and continued with millennials. So, I've, I, you know, un- unfortunately, I'm on social media uh, and people really don't like it when you talk about millennials and money. Yes. That's so right. Tell, tell us what they don't like. The hard way. Yeah, I, I know you did, and you're going to continue to do that as you promote yes. this book. But tell, tell, let's let's let you give the nuanced answer for that in terms of like this isn't a tweet. This is you talking about right. the data and what you saw. So t- tell us tell us what you you discovered. Yeah, you know, so there's been this narrative for a really long time. Millennials are broke. They're going to the first generation is not going to do as well as their parents. And early on, um, so of course, you know, Great Recession, a lot of Millennials starting their careers during this time. And yeah, median incomes were pretty bad for young adults. Um, the St. Louis Fed, Federal Reserve of St. Louis, looked at wealth building, said, Ooh, you know, I think they, they looked at like 2015 data. Millennials were way behind because they're just, it hadn't taken, there hadn't been that much time to recover, you know, from, uh, from the Great Recession and um, the un- unemployment and lower salaries at that time. But that was a while ago. So in writing the book, I thought, well, let's take a look at this. It's always a good thing to do. You know, you hear a common narrative. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's not. So um, median income for 25 to 44-year-olds has been at all-time highs the last few years. So Mm -hmm. that that group is mostly millennials. In other words, millennials are making more money than Gen Xers and boomers at the same age. Now, very important to note, this is corrected for inflation. So it already takes into account costs of housing, health care, child care. And yes, those have gone up at more um, at more than the rate of um, standard inflation, although housing is about the same because housing is such a big component of the inflation calculation. Yeah. There's other things that are that are less expensive. Clothes are less expensive, cars, um, consumer electronics, televisions, things like that. So that's one piece of it. Then um, the St. Louis Fed also took a closer look at wealth and found in the most recent data, millennial wealth, so it takes into account assets as well as debt, including student debt, is neck and neck with Gen Xers and boomers at the same age. Millennials have really bounced back. Uh, And I I found a hint of that too. And when I looked at that, there's the common trope about millennials never own houses. Millennial homeownership is only behind Gen Xers and boomers by about two percentage points. The same age. That that's really it. Now it's not all rosy. One thing is that almost all of the increase in incomes is from women's incomes. So that means you have a heterosexual couple. They want to have a kid, and they want to keep their income the same. They're going to need childcare, and so that's a dilemma that 
family's a face for a while, but it's more cute for millennials. Ironically, for a good reason, because women are making more money. Right, right, right. But this is this is. I mean, and I know there's been some caregiving legislation this week, uh, which I'm I'm thrilled with. But this is a guy. If there is a well, there's a couple of these, right? Climate change as well, but. Sure. The, you know, so the gray tsunami, the sandwich generation, all of these things that are coming when you're having to take care of your parents and taking care of kids. And then there's two incomes. And then, I mean, I have a friend who has four kids in college right now and they're not going to, I mean, they're going to Tufts. They're going to Stanford. Yeah. How? I know. <laughs> I mean, right. that add up what that is. Yeah. I mean, we're talking millions yes. of dollars. Yes. And do you have to be a millionaire to go to a good school? I mean, that's just, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the good news is, you know, a lot of state universities, yes, they are more expensive now than they used to be, but that at least, you yeah. know, it's not going to break the bank quite as much. Um, mental health. What's the mental health of millennial generation? Yeah. So, you know, I started to get interested in trends in mental health a while ago. And um, yeah, I really have to start with Gen Z because that's kind of where the story starts with, with okay. mental health. So for teens um, and Gen Z young adults, mental health is getting has been getting worse for a while. There's a common perception of the teen mental health crisis because of the p- pandemic, and it's not. Teen depression started to increase more than 10 years ago, and mm-hmm. it doubled between 2011 and 2019, so even before the pandemic. And then and that started to show up for young adults. And for a while, uh, it looked like millennials were not touched um, by those changes in mental health. But then around 2015 or 2016, those increases in depression and poor mental health started to come for millennials too. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, it's mostly 26 to 34 year olds is where you see most of it. So I'm still trying to puzzle this one out. I think um, the um, shift in, in culture due to smartphones and social media still has something to do with it, but people in that age group, they didn't, they, so teens started to spend a lot less time with their friends face to face. And so did adults, but not by as much, you know, their, their Mm -hmm. decline in time spent with people face to face only declined by about a fourth as much as teens. So there's clearly something else going on there. And I wonder if it's also partially, you know, disappointment with adulthood after having very high expectations. It could also be um, elements of um, just, you know, what's happened since 2015 in the culture, although there's been, uh, you know, certainly some, some good things, there's also, it just, it feels like every year things become more politically polarized and more toxic. And yeah. that's not pleasant for anybody. No. So, so what I got in the book, and I think what I'm hearing from you now is we're now covering a topic that we're probably a little too close to, to give any sort of definitive answer. And there's going to be surprises down the line that we might like, oh, we didn't think about that. They could uh, be. Could be. Yeah. One of the things that I was wondering about, because this doesn't show up in the book so much, you talk a little bit about it, but um, the gun violence, I mean, especially in the terms of the schools. Yeah. So that was just, I just don't, uh, I mean, yeah, I was, th- think about us growing up, like there was the tower on the college campus, right, in Texas. I mean, they, they, yep. it was so rare, Kent right. State, you know, right. though th- those things were seared into my mind. I mean, like, I right. can still see those pictures. Right. Those pictures were in like a time life collection that I had, right? That my parents had. It wasn't every week. Yeah. So and I wonder how, how much that is also affecting our young people today. Yeah. Well, I think we, we also do have to take a little bit of perspective on this though, 
because we were talking about the violent crime yeah. in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of kids getting killed by gun violence then, too, and it didn't get as much attention. Well, it was more one-on-one, right? Right. It was more one-on-one. And then also, and I'm not the first person to observe this, most of those kids were black. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the other element. Um, well, that's a running theme of the book in terms of AIDS, you know, all, all these sort of silent things. And then, yeah. and then that begets the question, and I think, you know, it's asked in the book uh, is, oh, is this maybe just because we're talking about it now more in a way that we never talked about it before? And there might be an element of that, right? Yeah, and it, it, it's, it's part of it. I mean, so, and I, I don't at all want to want to minimize um because it is, it's an enormous problem, school shootings and gun violence in, in, in general. Uh, it's clearly one of those big problems that we need to solve. Um, and I think Gen Z maybe, you know, might be the ones to, to, to solve that. I mean, we've, we've seen that already. They have a lot of political activism around that issue. Gen Z is voting at higher rates than young adults were. Um, when they were millennials and, and, and Gen X. So they have that interest in politics. Um, it remains to be seen, you know, how it all plays out. But gun violence is a central issue for them, partially because they grew up with this. We also do have to remember, though, that millennials did too. Columbine was during the millennial era. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. So, and I think maybe we're starting to see some of those voting patterns in these last uh, couple elections, right? And certainly here in Chicago. I mean, I, there was a report today that uh, Vallis outspent Brandon Johnson uh, a double. He spent double and, and you know, ended up, Johnson won because he had the black vote, uh, but he had the young vote. Uh, and then, and then the college campuses in Wisconsin, right? And the college campuses in, in, in Michigan. So, and and I, those young voters do tend to be more liberal. Is that correct? They are, yeah. I mean, and as a general rule, people, you know, the idea is people get more conservative as they get older. But there are generational patterns, too. So there's this really interesting theory that says that, um, at least by a few percentage points, the generation's political leanings get set by the popularity of the president when they were young. So for Gen Xers, that was Ronald Reagan, a very popular Republican president. And to this day, Gen X is a little more conservative and Republican than other generations were, especially when they were young, but that's continued. And then there's a more pronounced break with millennials. Um, when Obama was president, he was relatively popular. Mm-hmm. We'll have to see what happens with Gen Z because neither Trump nor Biden has been particularly popular. So we'll have right. to see where their where their uh, loyalties though and uh, political leanings end up being I think the 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 gender issue right is also one that is fascinating and you know I, I, my wife uh, marked this years ago not that many but a few years ago and being like my kids and again she runs a a comedy major at Columbia College here in Chicago so you know she attracts a certain kind of student uh, but the thing that was amazing to her is with her trans students were primarily female to male, which was a new thing compared to, you know, the previous 10, 15 years. Yeah, there's there's been a definite switch um, that when only only really for young adults. And that's the other thing that's 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 oh, not fascinating for, about it. Not for the other generation. Very little change in in identifying as trans among those over about 27 It's a little bit. Those are the age of 40. It's pretty much constant since 2014, which is as far back as we had data. But for young adults, enormous increase in the number who are identifying as trans. Um, and then there's also a big um, 
generational split in those identifying as non-binary. Hmm. Uh, there was a term that you introduced me to, and I want to tell you the rabbit hole I went down. Uh, yeah. So you talk about this term cry bullies, and, yes. and I was like, oh, that's pretty funny. And, and, the, and the concept being uh, people who get online and uh, sort of wear their victimhood, but as a way to get at other people and bully, yes. bully people. And I'm like, I, I, I love this. But of course, the being the sort of lefty liberal that I am, I immediately hoisted this on a bunch of conservative people. And I, and then the term when I started researching it was primarily people on the right. Uh, and I can see why they were using it in, in, in terms of that. But it's interesting because it goes into this, this what I like to refer to as competitive victimhood, that we seem to live in a culture where you can be, you know, a, a white conservative, let's say a Tennessee state senator and be crying about your state uh, of, of matters, and then there's there's someone else seemingly on the other side of that equation. So this this feels like an equal opportunity designation, maybe. I think it is. I was, I was writing something recently about this and thinking about it because I was first. I think I think a lot of people when they bring that up, they're thinking of people on the left. I think maybe because of some of the stereotype of of you know liberal tears or that type of yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. Snowflakes. You know? And and them. Okay, maybe they have some points that that. Progressives tend to tend to focus on people who don't have as much advantage, and so then maybe you can. There's there's the idea of the, the victim mentality, but it does appear on on both sides. There's the the narrative that you know liberal cities are a hellscape. That there's the war on Christmas. That make America great again because it's not great anymore. You know, there, it, yeah. it shows up on both sides. It's so confusing now. I mean, that's the other thing that's happened. It was a little bit, I remember, you know, I grew up in Kenilworth, Illinois, which at that point was one of the wealthiest suburbs in America. Uh, and I, it was old money Republican conservatives who um, I got a lot. Donald Rumsfeld used to drive me and um, when I was a little kid and other kids as part of a carpool to swimming lessons. And, wow. Right. How weird. It, and yeah. like, and and we were the first, you know, uh, Democrats in Kenilworth and, and like, but it just wasn't, I don't know, that was, it was never an issue in terms of our day to day. It was when we went to the ballot box and we get in arguments and all that, that sort of thing. And then now it's become this identity thing, but not mm-hmm. even tied to ways you might vote, you know, or like pro-business, like the whole idea of being pro-business and in the side while, while DeSantis is like just getting in a fight with Disney for no reason. It's, I don't know. It, 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 it's, it, it, there's no anchor anymore that I can find inside of those. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's changed. You know, politics is almost replaced religion in a way of how central it is to people's identities and how, um, I mean, there was a poll I saw recently, like there's, People will now say, you know, they used to be worried about their daughter or son marrying somebody from another religion or another race. And now they're worried about their daughter or son marrying somebody from the other political party. Wow. (laughs) That's. Yeah. All right. So then this next generation, the what what a lot of people call the alphas, but you call the polars. And these are folks who were born after 2013. Why do you use the term polars? So polars is after the melting polar ice caps and political polarization. So two things we've um, you know already been talking about that will really shape this generation. I don't know what they'll end up being called. Um, alphas comes from, so we have uh, Gen Z before them. So that means, okay, we've run out of letters. Now we got to go back to the beginning of the alphabet. And let's use the Greek alphabet this time, like hurricanes or something. 
Not right. a huge fan of the letters. Mm-hmm. Not very creative. Uh, and millennials were once called Gen Y, and that didn't stick. So, oh, that's right. I forgot about Gen Y. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know if I didn't even know if Gen Z is going to stick. Um, I tried to call them iGen, but that didn't really go anywhere. Uh, um, it, it, you know, the idea of them growing up with smartphones. I've heard some people call them Zoomers. I kind of like oh. it. I don't know if they like it, but it's more. It's better than just a letter. Yeah. How? Um, I know you're an academic, so maybe you don't answer this in a certain way that others might, but do, do you, how optimistic are you for, for the future? It is a hard question to answer. Yeah. Um, you know, I, we do, we do have a lot of challenges. Um, and, but I, I think that the, that voting rate of Gen Z, that Gen Z young adults are voting more, that definitely gives me some optimism and hope, but do you think we have to really, think about how toxic the national conversation has gotten and not right. just political polarization, that it is about identity, that um, some of the stuff around, around cancel culture and free speech is concerning that we need to be able to have free discussion. So um, I really like what my alma mater has said of, look, you know, we're going to have discussions and that's the way to do it. And sometimes we might be uncomfortable, but we need to talk to each other. I didn't tell you this, but you might be intrigued to know that the Orient for the last seven years at the University of Chicago, undergrad, grad, and the law school, um, the orientation program was created by Second City uh, with with uh, the folks at the Center for Decision Research and Behavioral Science. And one of the so, so one of the things that we teach is uh, something we we developed in the lab. And you, you know, the podcast is called Getting the Yes And. I'm sure you've heard of the improv term Yes And. You know, this idea of, of your default position is normally is say no or do nothing. We know that from behavioral economics. So Yes And is kind of this nudge to get into abundance of ideas. And the professors had asked us early on, well, what do you do when you can't Yes And someone? Like you just don't want to, but you need to stay inside the conversation because that happens. Mm-hmm. And what we came up with, and there's a paper coming out next year because science moves slower than life, which I learned. <laughs> Yes, it does. Yeah, you people. Uh, So this is like seven years ago we did this. But uh, the term we came up with and that we've been testing is thank you because. And the idea Mm -hmm. is thanking someone for their opinion. So let's set off the gratitude part of the brain and find anything. It doesn't matter how small that we do agree with. So the example I always use when my daughter was sick, uh, she had friends whose parents or a friend of hers whose parents were anti-vax well before this was like a thing. Mm-hmm. And so my thank you because, cause literally I was like, how do I deal with this? Yeah. And I was like, thank you uh, because you care for your girls so much. You don't want to hurt by vaccines. I care for my girls so much. I don't want to hurt by not having vaccines. So like, like we care about the same important thing. We just have different ways of getting there and we can figure it out. And we did. Mm-hmm. And it's and what we've done, the reason the paper is taking so long is the original study was both parties doing thank you because, and now we wanted to get a few thousand people to do it with just one, and it still works. That's cool. I think that's hopeful in, in the sense that, like, yeah. so if we give people a chance, and I think this does speak to what we think we know about the human condition of people want to be seen. And they want to be seen as, as having a soul and a mind and, 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 and these other, these differences, I mean, like Dan Gilbert says, you know, it's like if an alien came down and met one person, they'd understand 99% of humanity. And that doesn't ignore the systemic problems and the other problems, which are very real. But as humans, we know we can do this because we have, despite our differences. So I guess I'm, I guess I'm optimistic. (laughs) Yeah. Good. 
<laughs> that makes one of us. <laughs> I'm not saying that. All right. We always end the podcast by asking our guest for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've written books before. They have been fun, but of course, a lot of work. And almost anybody who has written a book will tell you that after you finish a book, you're like, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. Right. Um, so I had finished my previous book, iGen, about, about Gen Z and traveling around, giving talks and so on. People, oh, what's your next book? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just letting this one roll out. And then started to talk to people and realized, well, you know, Somebody should write a book about all of the generations because I had been focusing on just each upcoming young generation. Why don't you write a book? Someone said to me about all of the generations. Mm -hmm. And my first thought was, oh my God, that sounds like I would, you know, never forgive myself given the amount of work that would be. Um, but I said, yes, and, and, <laughs> and you did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you're done and now you're dreading the next book. Yeah, well, and people are already asking me what's the next one, and I'm like, please uh, don't ask me that. <laughs> give yourself a break. Uh, the book is called Generations, The Real Difference Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Gene Twangy, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Secondcity.